Hello, good morning, good evening, good afternoon, good night, good yontif. Whenever you feel like listening to me, I appreciate you being here. Uh, my name is GBK. The dog you hear whining is Hunter, if you can hear him. And this is Just Conversation, my second episode. I'm so happy for you to join me. Join us today because today I'll have a very special interview with the one and the only Pete Lumholm. <laughs> so let me uh, do a quick introduction of Pete, uh, or Petey as I've called him in the past, but we will uh, cross that bridge when we get there. Uh, he is the creator of a uh, internet series, you would say, called Quiet in the Kitchen. Uh, I believe he's been had, had 20 episodes so far. He is also the front man, aka the drummer, for the world-renowned uh, Grateful Dead, Hard Dead tribute band, Cream Puff Warriors, uh, and an all-around just good dude. Uh, a little background between me and Petey before I let him uh, speak his mind a little bit. Uh, Petey and I uh, have known each other since basically high school. Uh, became friends kind of, I would say, towards the end of high school, maybe senior year, maybe even junior year. Um, I owe Petey a lot uh, in terms of just becoming a music fan and being an overall music fan. Uh, he basically taught me a lot that I need to know about the, that I, that I know about the Grateful Dead and it kind of opened my eyes to other music, other genres, other styles of music. So I would say that I owe him everything for being the music fan that I am today. So let me start by saying hello, Pete. <clears throat> How are you? Hey, GBK. I'm good, man. You've uh, you've known me long enough uh, to call me Petey. I'll allow it. Petey, you know okay. Me back when I would go for that, and you can you can have it. I'm not gonna lie. It's a little weird calling you Pete I sometimes. Know. It's weird hearing it from you. And and I I'm not gonna lie, Petey. I feel like you know it's like a childhood name. Mm -hmm. I can understand wanting to be called Pete, but we're childhood friends, so I'm. You know, PD just kind of sounds right. Yeah, that's cool. I'll allow it. Uh, so let me start with the first question that, I, yeah. that I've had for you, and uh, it's in regards to Quiet in the Kitchen. Uh -huh. uh, I just want to get some background on that because, you know, I, I'm not sure, to be honest with you, that I've watched all 20 episodes, but I've watched most of them, and uh, I think the instrumentals that you have created in that have been amazing. The people that you've had guest have been amazing. Um, and I just want to know what was your inspiration there? What, how did you start off by wanting to do that and what got you into doing it? Man, it was, um, it was super weird. It was probably like just about two months into the, the lockdown. Um, I started getting a little bit squirrely. I don't know. I had to make something. I had to like, you know, create something. And, uh, for some reason I had this, this arbitrary urge to, um, try to recreate stuff from like the chronic like g-funk grooves i thought like all right i'm i'm proficient enough to like put down some of those like uh, you know iconic drum breaks and bass lines it didn't seem too complicated like you know i couldn't sit there and do like a, a song because i just i don't i don't really have that in me you know i play good in bands but just with what i had in my apartment which is you know <laughs> a snare drum and a milk crate and a acoustic guitar that got pulled out of the garbage that had five strings on it and it was just whatever i could find around and i the first one i did um a deep cover which was dr dre and snoop dogg 
And uh, I don't know why I just typed in the caption was G-Funk quiet in the kitchen. Because I was doing it in the kitchen and I have to be quiet because I have super sensitive neighbors and, sure. you know, doing real dainty snare drum hits and real dainty everything. And um, I know people thought it was cool. A lot of people were, were into it. And uh, I did another one like the same night, I think. I think the next one I did was like... Uh, uh, natural born killers, another, you know, another Dr. Dre deal. Just because I like those bass lines, I like just snare and kick, and that's really all I could do. I used the acapella app to like turn the acoustic guitar, pitch it down into a bass, stuff like that. It was just it was just tinkering around, and then a couple more episodes after that, I started slipping in little goofy things. I'd do a couple minutes of like a hip hop track, or not even a couple minutes. I would do like ten seconds of a hip hop track, and then I'd put in something funny, a clip from a movie or a you know, a clip of my cat or whatever. There's little things like that. And over time, kind of, I don't think anybody's, like, really seen all of, like you said at the beginning, like, you don't know if you've seen all of them. I don't know if anybody really has put together the whole arc of it uh, and how the the shenanigans of it became probably way more important than the, you know, quote-unquote music, which, again, was just a fun, that was just a fun dick around. That was a distraction, you know. But, hey... Uh, I'm glad to do it, and it's been a fun distraction. That's what I'm here for, to distract and entertain. You know? Well, we're definitely glad that you've been doing it, too, because I've been uh, definitely watching a few of the episodes, yeah. and they've definitely been you know, very funny. Uh, I've noticed you've also collaborated with your, with your brother. Uh, I, I believe both of them you've collaborated with on yeah. Quiet in the Kitchen. Yeah. Uh, that's Chris and, and Packy one home. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I want to kind of go back to your history. You've been friends for a long time. Uh, you and your brothers have collaborated, I know, before. I know that Packy plays with Cream Puff Warriors currently. Uh, I'm not sure if full-time or not, but... Uh, Pretty much. Yeah. He's first call. You know, there's people right. that will fill in, but Packy is the primary guitarist. Uh, now, I, I remember you guys used to do... You guys did another dead cover band project. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I don't know. I, I personally have loved all the songs I've seen you play, uh, and I'd love for my audience to kind of know more about it. Um, yeah. You know, what was your inspiration there? And if could, do you remember a couple of the songs that you guys played and, you know, what you did it for and, um, I believe, uh, you know, what came of it? Well, the first the first kind of dead-based dead vehicle um, for stuff was... Uh, I was in a band called Circus Bear, Power Trio in Chicago, which was a very fun band. Uh, excuse me, kind of petered out. But uh, in that time, the idea had come up for me and Packy to get some people together to do some dead stuff. Um, you know, at the places in Chicago that were having like Grateful Dead night and these open things or whatever. Um, and and our, our thrust of it always was that, you know, me and Packy and, and Chris too, um, we grew up in a Grateful Dead family. Our parents were huge deadheads. And, uh, but we also liked, you know, uh, like Jane's Addiction and Guns N' Roses and, you know, whatever, little influences we pick up along the way. And it was always, I always had this fantasy of kind of doing the dead thing just a little louder, a little more, uh, a little more in your face, a little more hostile. Hard <laughs> whatever, dead. Hard dead, yeah, whatever you want to call it. So that, that idea kind of became Departure, which um, was also the first time I got to play with Josh Olkin, who is not only one of my favorite people ever, but doing those first, my first ever dead-centric gigs with him uh, I don't think you could, you could never write that in a book. You could never teach somebody that you could only do it. You could only have it happen. So to not only be able to gig with Packy and everything, 
but to have this bond with Josh and then other people would come in. Dan Mulder came in, who he had been playing with Caution, who had a residency at Hearts on the south side, and he's an unbelievable keyboardist. And um, so that became kind of the open. The core of Departure was uh, me and Packy and Josh. And then other people from the dead scene. You know, the dead scene is very, um, and I don't mean to, to name drop, but I talked with um, David Gans about this, that the dead scene is has taken on a life to where it's almost like, you know, <laughs> dead cover bands are no more a dead cover band than the London Symphony Orchestra is a Beethoven cover band. It's, you might be playing from this, this core book, um, and if you know the material and if you're somebody who, who knows the songs and can hang if they're whatever's called out, you know, you can, you can get in that scene. I'm probably the weakest link in any, in any dead band that I'm in purely from a, you know, chop standpoint, but, um, steer me back on track here. What was this one? We were kind well, of we were getting, getting we were, to Green Puff Warriors and stuff. Well, we getting, were getting there, but I, yeah. I wanted to talk about your project that, that you did with your brothers. I believe it was for dead.net oh, yes, or dead.com. Dead, yes. I, I I think everything that you said was great. Right, I'm so. such an idiot. It's no, been a long that, was, day. that was perfect. All right, so the the Dead Covers Project thing was was during that was actually during, um, like the seminal moments of Departure. We mentioned like Departure when we got interviewed for Dead.net. So me and Chris and Packy, Packy the year before. If any for anybody who doesn't know that every year Dead.net has the Dead Covers Project and people perform a Grateful Dead song and. Depending on you know the traction it's getting, the attention it's getting, they'll they'll feature them on the website, and it the the quote unquote competitive nature of it has diminished over the last couple of years. But for those first couple of years, it was very much about who was getting views and who was getting the most whatever. And so uh, Packy had done some the year before that got a lot of attention, and so the following year, I think it was the second year of the covers project, me. And Chris and Packy, so all three of the Lundholm brothers, did the other one. Um, great song. Yeah, and it, it was a, it was a blast. That's kind of a great vehicle for that hard hitting. You know, you get in, you listen to those like '78 other ones. Man, they're just blazing. That's as heavy a band as there's ever been, as far as I'm concerned. And uh, so we did. Me and Packy did the drums, and I also played bass. And Packy did some fake Bobby stuff and Brent stuff and. Uh, Chris, you know, ripped on the lead guitar and shredded. Uh, yeah, and it that one really took off. I mean, uh, you know, I what's that guy's name? God, I, I can't think of anything today. But uh, God, what is that guy's name? Who's the guy who wrote that Garcia biography? Oh, uh, Blair Jackson. That's it. Blair Jackson shared it, and people were talking about it. It was like, whoa, look at this. This is a this is an interesting take on you know this this jam vehicle. And uh, that was uh, like a lifetime highlight for us because, you know, as brothers, everyone thinks we've had a brother band before, but really we haven't. I mean, it's never really worked out to where we had a regular working band that was just the brothers. Chris had his gospel scene and Packy was doing all kinds of different things. I had my little punk rock shit kid gigs and whatever, but to be able to come together for that and have it become something that a lot of people talked about and then to get you know, interviewed on dead.net and to be able to talk about it and express our love for that music on that type of a forum was um, a really cool thing. I can't believe I forgot Blair Jackson's name. No worries. So that brings me to my next question I wanted to ask. Um, with you and your, in regards to you and your brothers, 
I, I would consider you guys second generation deadheads. Is that fair? That's fair. Yeah, that's correct. Uh, this is like the third take of me asking that question. <laughs> so I, I just wanted to ask about your your kind of upbringing. Uh, your your parents were big deadheads. I know your dad was a huge deadhead. I actually think I remember you telling me that he first started seeing the dead in 1969. Yep. So I want to know you know how that kind of relates to you and and your life growing up. What does the dead mean to you and your family? So, yeah, I believe it was 69 when my dad first saw them. I, there's some dispute that it may have been even earlier, um, but, you know, records are, are hazy from, <laughs> sure. from that generation. Uh, no, I would, um, to me, and I use this phrase a lot, and I definitely said this in the aforementioned dead.net interview. Excuse me. Uh, the, the Grateful Dead, those were my lullabies growing up that was a big part of the uh you know that's what made up our family's kind of fabric that mythology and those words were were a big <clears throat> centering thing for all of us and not in a not in a walmart psychedelic way not in a you know this is just a band and a brand and a thing that exists that we liked it always meant more than that the the earliest things i remember I don't remember a time where I didn't know who Jerry Garcia was. You know, the first things I remember are like being in the den of our old house and when PBS would show um, Dead Ahead from Radio City Music Hall and stuff like that. And little things about it, they, they scared me a little bit, but I also liked it. And hearing certain records and certain songs for the first time or finding out certain things, having those moments of understanding a song, which sometimes... You know, you get into the dead as a teenager, and then when you're 25, you can can relate to something in a romantic song. I was picking up pieces of that mythology and those words from the time as far back as I can remember. You know, so yeah, it's 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 not uh, again. It like it almost goes without saying. It's such a big part of our of our uh, ethos in our household that you know it, it almost goes without saying. I remember this one year. This is a little tangent, but uh, somebody had sent us like a. Uh, a Jerry Garcia Christmas ornament, like two years after he died. And I remember uh, us going to hang it up and, and my dad just kind of looking at it like, eh, you know, it's, it's nice, but, you know, we know, he knows. And that kind of said it all to me. It's like, it's not about the, uh, you know, what t-shirt you wear or any of that kind of stuff. It's something that the Grateful Dead thing and when I say the thing, by the way, you know, and any deadhead listening knows, the thing happens in your heart. You know, it happens, it's, it's a feeling that you get that you, nothing will ever uh, convey it. You know, and I feel that carrying that with you at all times, I take it into everything that I do. You know, their, their attitude and their, their belief system, and it's not just an approach to music, it's an approach to life. I guess that's probably sorry if that was too long. No, that, that was that was perfect. I feel like all right, good. <laughs> a little self indulgent, but no, all right. that that's great. Good, and, good. and I'm sure the audience uh, enjoyed uh, hearing that as well. They better. <laughs> so <clears throat> then, uh, what you know, you've been seeing the dead and all the you know different dead projects that have come about it for years. Uh, let me ask this: what's what's your favorite project? Whoa. <laughs> Hey, yo. Going right into um, it. I have a lot of fond memories with Rat Dog, including ones with you. Mm. Those were our first shows that we saw together. Not going to get into all the details. No, of course of those. not. Those, you know, that's for the courts to decide. Yeah, but, uh, uh, yeah, a lot of special times with Rat Dog. That was actually the first 
dead centric thing that I went to that I actually remember. My dad took me to Rat Dog in in two thousand, I believe, with um, Rusted Root and send me a, on my way. A very very young Keller Williams and a very you know it was a it was a trip. You know I was ten years old so. Uh, and I have a real soft spot for Further because I think that was one of the, you know, I think Joe Russo as a drummer did something to those guys that they hadn't really been, nobody's been around to challenge them with, and that is kind of based in the heaviness. And Joe Russo is a guy like me who he likes Fugazi and he likes Jane's Addiction, and you know what I mean. It did something. He was hearing the Grateful Dead music the way I had been hearing it back uh, in high school. You know, like when I. The way the the stuff that I like, the moments that I would live for, I feel further would bathe in them for very long periods of time, and it was very deliberate. It was very forward. You know, I I, I hate to give like a platitude answer, like I like I like them all. I find something that I like about all of them, but I would say um, you know further and the Phil Lesh Q lineup very special to me. Um, I mean, dude, there's nothing like I mean, it's me and Packy being at Joliet Raceway in 2002 for the dead and Bob Dylan. Um, right. I mean, that was like an out-of-body experience. Sure. You know what I mean? I was sure. 14. Packy was, whatever, 17. And, you know, my dad and older siblings and my dad's head friends were doing what they always do, which is be way in the back, and you lay down. And there's My dad used to always say, there's nothing to see. My dad was all about find the place where it sounds best to you. He had all his little spots at oh, all yeah. the venues where he would sit. He knew exactly where. My dad always joked that I saw the dead for 30 years, never looked at the stage, never cared, didn't, you know what I mean? It was, he would find his, his sonic place and would just depart. That's you know, awesome. To, to coin a phrase. And, uh, but at 14, Packy and I at Joliet Race, Raceway, the open pit just kept getting forward and forward and forward and got super close. And I mean, it was like, I mean, I was changed. That was sure. a, that was a before and after thing to sure. be in that proximity during the drums. Again, it's like you hear the jokes about bathroom breaks for drums and everything. Me and Packy were absolutely freaking out. We couldn't say anything. We could barely look at each other. It was just we just knew, you know. So something about those post Jerry lineups and the the heaviness of the antiquity of it and being the age that I was at had a huge impact on me. If I can, I can curse, right? Yeah, I don't care. Man, the, that Fuck. show fucked me up. Hell that yeah. Juilliard Raceway show fucked me all the way up. It changed me. I was never the same after that. I never saw live music the same again. I never felt the same about drumming or anything. It completely flipped me upside down, and I was different from that moment on. Well, and that... sober, by the way, because I was 14, <laughs> so it wasn't like there was any intercession of chemicals that shit hadn't happened yet that's the other thing i think that when you're a second gen going back to your question when you're a second generation deadhead i had no perception at six years old of lsd or any of these things that are supposed to have been the kind of the birthplace of that sonic space to me it was it freaked me out regardless when i didn't know what drugs were i always could see like well this is crazy like this sounds crazy they look kind of crazy like something going on you know it tripped me out before i knew what being tripped out was people watching at those shows straight up yeah (laughs) i know what that's like yeah sometimes i am one of those people of course you are i've seen it sorry for partying (laughs) no no so let me ask you then about you know the dead have always been the counterculture band and, and the band that you know is not ever in the mainstream 
But I think it's fair to say that even when Jerry was still alive in the late 80s, they definitely reached some mainstream success where you had a lot more people going to their shows. You had incidents like the gate crashing incident in the 90s. Uh, a lot of things where, you know, um, around the time they released the album, I believe, In the Dark, they kind of blew up. And now you're kind of starting to see uh, some mainstream success with Dead & Company with mm-hmm. the addition of someone like John Mayer, who's been a very polarizing mainstream mm-hmm. blues guitarist, I guess you can say, yeah. uh, for, for years before he joined Dead & Company. And, you know, what I've noticed is I, you start seeing, you know, Nike is releasing these Dead-centric uh, shoes that are going for like $500 over how much they originally cost, which I think was $500. <laughs> then you have, uh, you know, obviously stores like Walmart that are selling dead gear. And, you know, you seem to have this kind of, uh, the, the, this commercialization of the Grateful Dead and, and, yeah. and the Grateful Dead name. Um, my real question is, is how, how do you feel about that? Does, oh, does that affect you or... You know, how do you view that? All right. Um, I got to be real careful. <laughs> I got to be real careful with my words here. Um, there's two, two ways to look at the commercialization thing. Um, the first one, which I think is slightly more the, the Jedi, more the light side of the coin, is that the more people that become interested in the Grateful Dead and the more people who could have those moments like what I had, when I was a teenager, where something clicked with me, where I had this whole new view of the world and of people and of music and sound and rhythm and having all those those magical moments happening, I want that to happen to everybody. Sure. I want every Grateful Dead related show to have 10 million people there. I wish every time Bob Weir picked up a guitar, the entire world could listen because it would. I, I feel like it could change people too. And I like to think that um, you know the John Mayer thing will bring in people that to me there was a lot and there's a lot of stuff that i still see as recently as the last tour and i see it every year a lot of the snarky like um oh god now there's all these preppies and these people who don't give a shit about the dead there it's like well yeah but that's not a problem if they're if they're misbehaving and they're being shitty and whatever then it's a problem but otherwise give everybody a chance to hear it and and try to to understand the ethics and those little unwritten things about giving people space when they're dancing and how to how to be to somebody who's a little bit fucked up and how to there's a certain there's something that happens again it's almost like I don't need to explain it to the people who who already know it that feeling of that communal thing you need to give people a chance to come to it sure you know my favorite thing of the last couple of years is my friend George Lohan who was a guitar player for Scars of Armageddon. Shout out Lohan. The best guy, unbelievable power metal guitarist for years. I've been chipping away at him since we were little kids, chipping away. I'll play him a little little snippet of a uh, like a like a spring 90 slipknot slipknot jam to hear some Jerry shredding. And then little things I over the years and suddenly in the last couple of years he's like uh, he's a dead nerd. I mean, he's he knows he knows his shit. He's got I've shows. He like you've been there shows with him. He he's got a collection of shows. Um, it just clicked with him, and he comes to stuff, and he totally gets it. And that's what I want for everybody. If you want to have the thing happen, you can. Um, the the dark side of it is everything that I just said without the qualifier of giving people credit. 
So there is something to be said about people who don't get it. They show up and they talk and it's just a party. And it's just that, yeah, you're Chambers. right. You're right, dude. It's fucking everywhere, dude. It's a, it's a, an epidemic. And the only thing that can stop that is, is people setting a, a good example. You know, the same, the same people that I see calling out the, the preppies, it's, it's like fucking high school. <laughs> Judging people, this guy's wearing an Abercrombie sweatshirt, so he must not be a deadhead. Like, well, maybe you being a hostile prick isn't helping things either. Sure. You know what I mean? I had a very powerful moment with that the, last summer at the Wrigley shows. On the first night, second set, they did St. Stephen, and then the William Tell Bridge, and the 11. I was there. And was like, awesome. I mean, it was, I was waiting the, that entire jam. I'm like, they're, this is going to fall apart. They're going to, they're going to blow the William Tell Bridge or they're going to lose the 11. And that's okay. Cause that's what we all know. That's what we're there for. But I got to thinking, which they didn't, by the way. I mean, they nailed that. That was one of the most insane things I've seen. And it was last summer. I mean, that was drumming everything money. But, um, I got to thinking in the middle of that, I wonder what somebody who's here for the first time thinks when they hear, you know, high green chili winds and na da da. You know, this this psychedelic cowboy thing that we're, we're being taken on. I like to think that they're all like, whoa, this is awesome. But there's got to be somebody out there who's a little bit confused. Oh, yeah. And holy shit, this, they've been playing this for 28 minutes. You know, little things like that. But even that in itself is not something that says this person doesn't get it and shouldn't be welcome and shouldn't be all this. So, so it's a give and take. Commercialization, as far as stuff goes, look, man, I'm not, I'm not going to be one of these people who, who hangs their, their flimsy, um, I don't, what do you want, anti-capitalist or whatever beliefs on, on the debt. You know what I mean? I'm an anti-capitalist too, but I'm not really that mad if Bob Weir wants to kind of make up for the 40 years that he spent giving everything away for free and allowing his likeness and his intellectual properties to be used for free for like 40 fucking years. If now as things are winding down, if he wants to catch up a little bit and buy some cars and do whatever the fuck pay for his kids college and then some and cash in a little bit go ahead dude you know what i mean like some people have earned the right to sell out yeah it sucks like american express presents dead and company it sucks but like i want to go you know what i mean i want to see the drummers i want to see bobby i don't really it's not that i don't care because i get it there's plenty of room i know everybody fancies themselves as ian mckay but I, i promise you you're not and this is not an this is not a statement uh about whether or not there is, in fact, ethical consumption under capitalism. Uh, this is purely a thing about what, what you're using to judge a bunch of 70-year-old men who really did not get, by choice, didn't get what they earned for almost their entire career, that they're kind of retconning a little bit of that. Yeah, it might be unrighteous, dude. Sorry. There's a lot of things you can do, and I think that within that framework, they're still doing more good things than bad. They should uh, change the lyrics in Jack Straw to, we used to play for life, now we play for silver. Sure, so do (laughs) I. I, You know what I mean? Let me tell you something right now. Bad joke. All right, a little tangent here. Um, Listen, for $200, the fucking president of American Express can piss in my mouth tonight. (laughs) Okay, so everybody who's getting on Billy because like, oh, Kreutzmann fucking blah, blah, blah. Shut up. You know what I mean? They've been giving this shit away forever. Give me a fucking break. And anybody who's tried to be a professional musician talking that kind of shit, shame on you. 
Well, that's that kind of brings me to sort of my next question. Oh God! All right, <laughs> let's talk about you being a musician. Uh-huh. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about uh, Cream Puff Warriors, your your project. You know, I want you to obviously have a chance to to sell some of my fans on them, the oh, three God. people that will be listening to this. Uh, but you know, you you kind of gave a basis of how Departure started, and you know, it eventually uh, evolved to Cream Puff Warriors. I believe you had a name. Before Cream Puff Warriors, I uh, had a little bit of a falling out with that. I, I just if you wanted to give a little history of that, yeah. Uh, so after I mean, Departure, I would like to say by the way, the Departure band that kind of was the birth of me playing Grateful Dead music with people uh, fizzled out, especially as Josh was brought into the fold in the Terrapin Flyer scene, and that was almost like he was getting called up to. Um, I think sports fans call it uh, like the major leagues. I would say it's like you got picked up from the indies and got brought to WWF or something. But that's what it was. Josh started getting that kind of thing, and there was it, there's no heat on that. And any chance to play with Josh, I'll take. But um, so there was a little bit of dead time there. I was doing little things here. I did some dates with Terrapin Flyer and stuff in between, and different departure lineups came and went. And then uh, the Emporium. The bar arcade. Arcade bar, sure. Yeah, we, they wanted to do a, a Grateful Dead night thing there, and they had talked to... There was a guy, I'm not going to use his name because I don't like him, but uh, who was trying to put together this thing, and the first people he thought of was me and Packy and all our assorted goons. And they knew that... And I'm not patting myself on the back, it's a fact. I mean, they knew we were a little bit of a draw. We had people built in kind of in the scene that would come to check out anything that... Especially Packy anything that he was working on they would they would come to so they set up this thing at the at the arcade bar um and there were some people that were built in kind of grandfathered into it by this particular promoter wound up being the best thing that could happen because i met marty gearzik saxophonist and berto gomez my my mickey my backbone my shout out my life and marty love those dudes and it wound up being the greatest thing that ever happened that band was actually called Friends of the Devil. There it is. Or as I call them, Satan's Pals. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, that went for a little while at Emporium, and then eventually we cut out the middleman because he was <clears throat> whatever, and uh, he wanted to take the name. He was going to keep doing a dead thing using that name, which is preposterous, and he didn't, by the way. He never wound up doing it. It just. I think there was one project they did that one. was built, Friends of the Devil, mm-hmm. and... I remember looking at it on Facebook and seeing, well, where the fuck is Pete yeah. or Petey? Yeah, Petey. And, uh, <laughs> no, and it was it was whack and it didn't happen. But uh, so we started a new residency minus this particular promoter, and we called it Cream Puff Warriors, CPW. Um, they play hard, Dad. To me, to me, <laughs> I, I feel that that name and that that logo and everything summarizes a lot more of what we're doing. It's a little bit more of a a shit house. It's hard dead. I don't know what to tell you. Listen to the tape sometimes. I don't play quiet. That's why Melvin Seals doesn't like me. <laughs> okay, well let's let's talk a little bit then about some of the hard dead. Yeah. You know, I obviously times have been very troubling the last six months. Yes. Uh, you guys have done some streams uh, in the past uh, to try to bring some content to your fans. I believe one of the streams was in uh, the Tonic Room. Yep. Uh, and you had one, I think, more recently, but I'm not sure. I, I was only able to catch some of it. I'm not sure where yeah. you recorded it. That was at the venue in Aurora. Okay. Yeah. Now, um, I mean, what's what's that like right now? Are, do you guys have similar projects in the works? Um, are you trying to find an outlet or trying to find a way to 
reach fans at a, like a socially distant, uh, you know, rate or totally. What 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 what's the next kind of step in this pandemic with CPW? Man, I don't even know. I don't know how much I'm allowed to say yet, but we are working on something pretty cool and pretty big, and also um, pretty consistent. We're gonna start doing some regular <clears throat> streams. I don't want to see. I don't even want to. I don't want to oversell or undersell because I think what it is going to become is something really cool and really different. Nobody's going to listen anyway. But so. I can't. I, I will in fact say that we're going to be doing some some streams and we are going to do another thing at the venue. I think we're talking about November. So the venue in Aurora. That's probably going to be simulcast. You have you had people there. We last had people time. there. They had little pods. You know, socially distanced, very safe, very serious. I mean, they were dead ass about everything so which we all appreciated because we take it seriously too so, but they had the stream and then we also had the crowd in the building and outside where they were projecting this stream cool. onto the side of the building it was super cool. cool i was that was a really nice little slice of the life we used to know you know isn't that a song goatier no whatever close enough yeah and so then i, I want to ask you you know when the pandemic first started, there was uh, live music seemed to just go at a complete halt. All you'd see is maybe very, very small local musicians getting together in somebody's basement and trying to stream one of their sets. But obviously, yeah. the heavy hitters, so to speak, uh, couldn't really do anything uh, until kind of some time passed. And, you know, you've been seeing a lot of bands start to do these live streams, uh, some asking for money, some just asking for donations. Uh, and and you're also starting to see this whole mold of like the drive-in concert, yeah. Uh, that's you know starting to come come about. So, what are what are your thoughts on like the drive-ins or these these socially distant concerts? I know for you as a musician, you know, who's I'm sure is itching to play as as much as you can. You know, you, you want to play, but yeah. You know, do, do you feel safe? Do you feel that? We're heading in the right direction, or do you feel that maybe we should be putting a halt to this until we're able to bring all concerts back? Well, no, I like the drive-in thing. I want to do one. Uh, Paggy did one recently with Terrapin Flyer, and I really liked the not only the precautions that they took, but the atmosphere of it. It's Doing the streams is fun. Playing to a camera and stuff is fun. Playing your set is, is all good, but uh, there's something to be said about how much, especially, especially in, in Grateful Dead music, Crowd and atmosphere and all that stuff is such a huge part of it that I'm, I'm doing a, a long jam, a long Eyes of the World just in an empty room is not going to hit the same as playing a long Eyes of the World to a packed house. There's different things that happen. There are those ebbs and flows and the crowd pops and this happens and somebody's spinning and it, it all plays a part. We all know about the symbiotic relationship. Having said that, that's not an option right now. The drive-in thing is sweet. I think those are great. It's funny, actually, the first, the weekend that lockdown came down, I was supposed to be on the road with Terrapin Flyer for Phil Lesh's birthday. We were supposed to be playing at the, you know the name better than me, that theater in Michigan. Oh, uh, I don't know. Castle Theater, maybe? Uh, maybe. Whatever. Where Where was it? Sweet Room, uh, up, Upper Peninsula, I think. Oh, okay. Sure. I don't. I, yeah, some of the Regardless. details are scant. I actually before before the lockdown came down, I I was pretty much full time with Therapy Flyer, and that kind of fell apart. But the first weekend that so when that show got canceled, uh, Doug Hagman, shout out Doug, shout out Doug, the leader of Therapy Flyer, our spiritual guide, whatever. Uh, 
scrambled to get a stream thing put together, and we and we did, and that was the first. And to me, that set the bar for all the streaming shows, especially because that first weekend, man, everybody knows, man, there was a weird feeling in the world. Absolutely. And that stream got a preposterous amount of of shares. I mean, every every dead fan page that there was. I mean, I'm swinging for my own nuts about Blair Jackson complimenting our video. I mean, everybody, all those dudes from, you know, uh, David Lemieux and all of them, all up on this stream because Terrapin Flyer just did this thing just like that. Hey, we can't go out and play Tune In. Here we are, and it got a That's ridiculous awesome. amount of attention, and uh, it was a lot of fun. So to me, that laid the framework for everybody after that of trying to do these streams and Terrapin Flyers doing a ton of them now, as you said. You know, Cream Puff Warriors are working on some, and I think everybody's doing what they can to get the at least the uh, somewhat of the feel of a performance out there to people, because people still need it. I mean, I need I need music like I need like a diabetic would need insulin, you know. Mm -hmm. But I don't I don't have that same thirst for live music that somebody who doesn't play live music professionally might have. I have the need for it as in I need to play. Everybody else has a need for it that they need to listen. <laughs> you know, that they need to be there for it and have those moments wherever they can, however they can. The drive-in is sweet. Um, I hope to do one of those. I, Umphreys did one, right? Uh, and you yeah. were there and I, stuff. I and, went both nights. Well, how was awesome. it? Did you have to stay in the car? Or were people getting out of the car? No, people were getting out of the car. Boogieing in their little yeah, area. Yeah, they gave you of? so they gave you like a, a car spot, and then they gave you a spot that you could stand next to, and okay. you could just sit by the car. You could sit in the car, but I mean, there was no point because mm -hmm. they had a whole PA system, so you know there was no nothing. The music wasn't coming through your speakers; it was coming through theirs. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I mean, it was people were pretty respectful. Nobody was really going into other people's spots. Good. Everyone seemed to be wearing their mask, and they seemed to be enforcing it. So yeah, it tremendous. Was good. Uh, you mind if I ask you a couple more questions before yeah, of we course. wrap up? Absolutely. So you know, to kind of build off what you were saying, you know, um, I don't know if you know this, but I just saw an announcement today that Bamaru Music Festival, which is usually held, uh, I believe, the second week of June, just announced that they're not going to be holding their festival until next September. Okay. So, um, you know, it, it seems that with the state of live music, at least for festivals and large gatherings, that you know there's going to be some hold on that, and you know, getting to see some of our favorite bands, including Dead and Company. Um, you know, it may be another couple years before we even get to do that. So, you know, you, as, as you're saying, you know, you want to keep building off of yourself as a musician. You know, obviously you have stuff going on with CPW. Uh, what else do you kind of envision for yourself in the future with, you know, we've kind of talked about Quiet in the Kitchen. We've yeah. talked about Green Puff Warriors. You know, what's, what's kind of next to kind of keep, I guess, chasing that monkey to, you know, get keep your music career going. It is a monkey. You're right. <laughs> it is absolutely a monkey on the back. Um, it, it, I'm trying to think of a way to put it that doesn't... To me, it's... Um, you know, I used to say before lockdown happened, it's like, if you got dates in your, in your little date book and you're getting booked and you're doing gigs and you're getting paid and nobody's fucking you over, you're in the game. So right now, everybody's trying to find a way to, to keep keep the game going. And all the people that are, I mean, uh, Colin Williams at ASP with his streaming facilities is doing awesome things. Jam Lab, Colin Peterick Spot, doing streams. We're all kind of evolving in a way. We're all kind of trying to find the best 
the best looking, best sounding, most accessible way um, to continue to do the craft. And then the other side of it of, you know, donations or whatever it might be, um, finding the, the best way to attach that to it. I mean, for, for some people that, you know, I, I think, especially in the last decade or so, anybody who's a professional musician, for the most part, has to have like several different things going anyway, because of the, just the economy of performance and what people want to pay to take in a show. So having those different outlets and playing with different bands, doing different streams, um, you know, I think everything is sort of building to a point where uh, it's going to become uh, an economy in itself, a self-contained thing of, like I said, there's now there's getting to be places where this is a place where you can go stream and they'll work out this deal with you where they charge you this flat rate, but any donations are yours and just show up with your gear and we'll film it and we'll put it out there. And people are, are, that's what musicians do, man. I mean, we adapt. Um, and not even just musicians, by the way. You mentioned, like, the Quiet in the Kitchen thing, trying to do... There's some ideas of being kicked around for that, doing a, a live one of those, a, a talk show with a band. I mean, there's a lot of crazy shit people are talking about oh, yeah. because now it's... People have the... It's not even about time or space, but it's about the that thirst for I got to put on a show I, I want to run lights and I want to run camera and I want to play and I want to do a, I want to get interviewed and I want to blow up whatever whatever right. it might be you know what I mean whatever gimmick you're you're uh again I, I don't want to use words that that downplay any of it but um people are adapting they're finding ways to get the thing out there and and keep people entertained I mean we all just have to have grace and understanding with each other that all anybody wants right now is to Try to have fun and try to capture even the smallest piece of the the world we used to know. You know. Sure, that's that's great. I I appreciate that, and I, again, I appreciate you taking this time to speak with me. Oh, I appreciate you. <clears throat> I just wanted to, I guess, uh, end it with uh, with one last question, mm -hmm. and just ask you, you know, with everything that is going on with, you know so much uncertainty going on in this world that, you know, I want to ask you what your message to people would be. How, <clears throat> how do you feel that, you know, in these tough times, what, I don't, I, I want to know what, what Pete Longham would have to say, how, how you feel. Oh man. Loaded question. Yeah. Loaded, loaded AF, but, uh, all right, look, I don't hide it. You know, I got a lot of problems. And for me to to try to, to throw out some kind of insipid, um, saccharine, everything's going to be okay kind of statement would not, that would not be me. <laughs> if, you, if you know me and you're listening to this, you know that that's not me. And if you don't know me, nice to meet you. Because uh, it's very hard right now for a number of reasons to think that things are going to be okay and that eventually we're, everything's going to get back to normal and all that stuff. Um, look, it's not that way. <laughs> all right. It's just, it's just not, but the one thing that we can all still hold on to is laughter and compassion and getting excited about, uh, about music and about those, whatever it is, whatever your little dalliance, 
whatever that fun thing is that you look forward to, that thing that you enjoy with your friends or alone, um, there are people out there that are trying to give it to you still. There are people that really want to do it, that really want to entertain you, that really want to um, you know, give you that experience any way they can right now. It might not be in a crowded room. It might not be a sweaty, you know, uh, a crowded dance floor, but there, you can get it. So please just, uh, you know, try to find your, find your pleasures where you can. Support the artists that are doing that for you, whoever they are. Any bands, any comedians, anybody. Do something to, to help them to continue doing it because they're doing it for you. They need it. They need to do it. But they're really, they're doing it for you. So, um, you know, keep the faith and vote and wear your fucking mask. That's right. And, uh, I don't know, be nice. Just be nice. Be Love each other. Yeah, straight up. Did that sound, did that sound that like a platitude, sounded, that Greg? That sounded great. Yeah, I didn't that... think so. <laughs> it's not a platitude. Be fucking nice. It's hard for everybody right now. It's not just me, it's not just you. Everything sucks for everybody. So keeping that in mind, if anything, moving forward, you should try to be better. Be as good as you can and appreciative of every little moment of normalcy and goodness that comes to you. And tip at least 20% people. Oh, come, 20, on. come on. At least 20%. At least. Petey, Pete. Uh, creator of Quiet in the Kitchen, uh, all-around badass, second-generation deadhead, uh, drummer in CPW, and just an awesome person that I have the pleasure of calling a friend. I really want to thank you for this interview. It means a lot to me. And um, I guess I do have one more question. Yeah. How'd it go? This interview? Yeah. Oh, dude, I loved it. I was about to say I wanted to actually don't close with a thing on me. Let me say something about GBK really quick. This is a guy... I, I don't think, and again, if you know him and you're listening to this, you already know this. If you don't know him, you got him because he's the best guy. He loves music. He, he has an aptitude and a feeling for it like nobody else. This is going to be a cool podcast. I'm very glad that I was your first interview interview. Me too. And uh, I hope I set the bar for some people. And I hope you'll have me back. Absolutely. Because I'm going to listen back to this, and there's going to be stuff I wish I could have said. There's going to be questions up a little bit I wish I could have asked. All right, forget it, man. So it's, it's on. This is part one. Part one of the 20-part interview with Pete Lundholm. GBK. Uh, I want to thank everyone for listening, uh, everyone that made it through all this, all three of you. And uh, I hope I can talk to you again. I hope everyone has a good morning, a good evening, a good afternoon, a good night, damn good Shabbos, and a good Yom Tov. Good night.